Uh, so while they are in transition, um, go ahead and get your Bibles out. Uh, we've also given away a, a resource. Uh, we've given a, like a, a little book of Ecclesiastes bound in one volume uh, that we have been giving away throughout this series. So you can get that out to take your notes or your bulletin. Uh, we are going to be at the very end of Ecclesiastes 6, and then we'll go into transition into Ecclesiastes uh, 7. So that's where we'll be. So while we're there transitioning, go ahead and get those resources out so that we can be ready, ready to go. Uh, we are officially, men and women, we are officially at the halfway mark of Ecclesiastes. Everybody give it one of these. And this is why. Because last night, uh, my, my father, um, not the most encouraging person on the planet, um, and my brother-in-law were like, so, what you preaching through? I said, we're preaching through Ecclesiastes. And they're like, why? And I was like, well, it's, you know, one of those books of the Bible that we need to teach through. And my father does the eye roll. and was like, phew, like that. And then my brother-in-law goes, so how many weeks are you teaching through? And I'm like, oh, it's going to be 12 or 13 weeks. And they're like, whoa, death knell to the church. So if you've been here for all seven weeks, you're still here. And so I just wanted to say, hey, this has not been the most uplifting book in the Bible, right? It has not been. And yet the murmurings that is going on throughout our congregation is that Solomon writing the book of Ecclesiastes, that the Lord really is churning in our hearts and asking some really, really hard questions. Um, so just as far as a literary um, device, the very last verse of last week's sermon, you can go and look at, at that. Um, the preacher does not have his Bible. Can, is there a Bible somewhere? Yeah, that'd be awesome. So, all right, so a little, <clears throat> here's my ego coming through. So I always leave it up here so that I don't forget it up here. But uh, Will always says this phrase, so if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Colossians 1 or whatever. And so my ego is like, oh, I'm the preacher, and I don't have my Bible there. So today I was like, ah, I'm going to have my Bible so that I can turn to it. But I left it. Okay. <laughs> it's the inner workings of a, yeah, an insecure man. All right, so there you go. All right, so a literary moment. Okay, so the very last verse of, of last week is actually Ecclesiastes 6.9. It says this, Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of an appetite. And this also is vanity and a striving after the wind. That phrase, striving after the wind, has happened nine times in the book of Ecclesiastes so far. You've had it in 114. Chapter 1, uh, chapter 1, verse 17, 211, 217, 226, 4446, 414, and the last one in 69. And so, as commentators and, the and theologians have said, okay, this is the last time we will actually hear that phrase, striving after the wind, meaning that you and I can't chase it, we can't lasso, we can't run after it and catch the wind. So, that is a vain exercise. But that phrase has come to a close. And so now we know that we're starting the second half of the book. And so in a real way, we've turned the page and we're going to focus on something else where the striving after the wind is vanity. We're actually going to look at something else in the second half of the book. And so if Solomon is going to start the second half of the book, what is he going to start with? 
And he is going to ask you and I to consider wisdom. For you and I to actually to pursue this thing called wisdom. Wisdom is the fear of the Lord. The beginning of, the, of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And we just know that this is a highbrow thought throughout scriptures. Is that you and I, if we're going to follow after Jesus, God has asked us, a mandate on us is for us to be wise. But not just wise when it comes to the ways of the world, but wise unto the Lord. And so that's how he opens the second half of the book, is for you and I to consider wisdom. And he does, I mean, the, the Bible tells us we can, we can find wisdom in all types of places and all types of ways. But in this passage today, Solomon is just going to give us two routes or two ways or two kind of journeys in which you and I can travel to pursue or to gain wisdom. The first is to submit to God's authority. And, and that comes through his sovereignty. Okay, so the first way that he's going to look at us and says, hey, hey, people of God, you need to be wise. He says, you have to submit to God's sovereign authority. And this is what it means. And so we're going to learn about that. And the second way, and this is where it's going to get most of our time today, because it's, a, it's counterintuitive, the second place that you and I pursue wisdom is in seasons of suffering and adversity. And Solomon tells us we can do all kinds of things to gain wisdom. But today, we're going to understand God's sovereignty, and we're going to understand that it comes through, through adversity. All right, so God's sovereignty. Let's, let's open up. In uh, the second half of Ecclesiastes 6, verse 10, and we're going to go to it like this. I'm going to read it, and then we're, going to, we're just going to parse through it. Verse 10 says this, Whatever has come to be has already been named, comma. That's point number one. Number two. And it has been known what man is. That's another kind of clue. Number three, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives a few days of his vain life, which, he pass, which passes like, like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? And so here's what we're going to do. If we're going to be wise people, if we're going to be, follow after Jesus and be wise unto the Lord, we're going to have to understand and have a robust theology of what this, this word means, sovereignty. You can kind of see the word reign in the middle, and that's our, our clue that sovereignty means that he is over all and in all, and so that he, as he has authority, we have to be subjected to what he has to say. And we're going we're gonna to kind of scream through these things. First and foremost, in 10a, you will see this little phrase. Whatever has come to, whatever has come to be has already been named. All right, so what does that mean? It means that God is the one who names things, okay? So part of God's sovereignty is the fact that he is the one declaring that's the sun or those are the stars or this you will call his name Jesus or Abraham or Samuel. All throughout scriptures, you see that God is the one who names. And here is the point for that as it falls under God's sovereignty, that whatever happens in the present right, has already been predetermined by God in the past. 
And so that's why we fall underneath God's sovereignty. So what everything, anything that has happened in the present has already been predetermined by God in the past. There was a star and then God names it, said that's star, that's antelope, that's grass, and on and on it goes. And then he gives this declaration to man, like you go and you name things. And so in all this, we know that naming is a big deal. Eve Ensler has a powerful essay. It's pretty highbrow and those types of things. But uh, she has a powerful essay when she says that naming things is the lifeblood of language. That's a really strong statement. Is that the lifeblood of language is actually being able to tell people what things are and draw a line and declare it to us. That language has the capacity to transform us. And that's why when we had six children, all of our children's middle names are family names. And so it's Kennedy Nicole or Spencer McKibben. And all of those middle names have are rooted someplace. The girls have uh, names from uh, the, her, the Nicole side and all the boys have names from my side of things because I want my kids who are now present to know that they are rooted someplace in the past and that past is a beautiful thing. So you and I understanding, so who, whatever has come to be has already been named. We have to realize that God is the one who names things. He starts it. He keeps going. He says this, not only does God name, but he gives limitations, right? And he gives limitations to us. Here's the phrase. And it has, and it is known what man is. God knows that he made us, and he made us with limitations. He knows that we are finite, that we are simply, that we are created. Remember um, how we were created? We were created out of the dust of the ground. And there's this sobering moment as dust you came to dust you will return. And so who knows what we are made of and who knows what it is? God knows and he has literally given us limitation so that he could be the sovereign one and we could always come underneath him. That's why in Isaiah 45, it says, look at these earthen vessels. He's looking at a potter shaping clay. Clay is literally made out of dust or dirt. And, he, and, the, and the potter is making this vessel. He says, look at that earthen vessel. Can it say to the potter or to the shaper or to the creator, I don't want to be made like this or I want to be something different? And of course, the, the answer to that question is absolutely not. The thing that is made has to be shaped in the way. He has given us limitations on purpose. Not only whatever has come to be has already been named. Not only is, is it known what man is, but and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. Okay? Who is the strong one in, in the last part of, of verse 10? God is. God is the strong one. And so who are we to argue with him? We can't because he's the strong one. He is the one that is able uh, to say it. And he is the one that is able to come out really strong and say, I am the mighty one and you have to be, and you have to understand that fully and completely. So God names, he gives us limitations. We know that God is the strong one and that God gets the last word. Speaking of speaking, 
we are not able to dispute with one stronger than him. But then he just gives us a little clarification. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? God gets the last word. This is a part of creation falling underneath God's sovereign reign for us. Remember, in chapter 3, it says there's a time for war and there's a time for peace. There's a time for gathering stones and scattering stones. There's a time to be born and a time to die. This is God's sovereign plan for all of us who are we to argue with his plan. And King Solomon says it's vanity to argue, to rebuke, to dispute the Lord. The more words, the more vanity, because he has set the times, he has set the places, he gets the last word over our lives. And we, the quicker we get to that point of understanding that, the better and the more wise we will be. He then asks two rhetorical questions. He says this first, for who knows what is good? For man, while he lives a few days of his vain life, which, he, which passes like the shadows. Who is this that says what is good? Well, God is the one who says what is good because God is good. Remember back in the creation story, it says it over and over and over. At the end of the days, he said, this is good. I've said it in its time. This is good. This is good. This is good. This is very good. The reason that he is able to declare what is good is because God's character himself is that he is good and good only. And so in a way, we have to fall to his goodness, right? His greatness, but also that he is good. And then there's a, the, a declaration here that says, a few days of his vain life, which passes like a shadow. This is another definition for vanity. Vanity is short-lived. Vanity is like a vapor, like smoke that just dissipates in the air. God is good, and part of what is rooted in his goodness is that he precedes us and he will outlast us. God is sovereign and he is good. Yes, he's given, given us limitations and that may frustrate us, but part of his goodness is the fact that he outlasts us, that we are just a shadow. And then lastly, understanding God's sovereignty is that God knows the future, right? This is good. Second rhetorical question says this, for he knows what is good in his vain life. And then the second question says, for who can tell man what will be after him under the sun. God knows the future. We do not. No one but God knows what tomorrow will bring. Even the weatherman, with all of his devices, sure, he can get close, but he will not tell us with exactness what tomorrow will bring. Not even this afternoon. Will it be an afternoon of adversity? Will it be an afternoon of trouble? Will it be an afternoon of pleasure? We just don't know what will happen in the future. But our doctrine of God's sovereignty says that God knows the future. And because he knows all of the times and places, we can trust him fully and completely. All right, so for us to be wise, number one, we have to fall underneath God's sovereignty. 
And we need to look at passages like Ecclesiastes 6, 10 and following to go, okay, do I have a robust theology of God's sovereign reign and rule and omnipower over my life? And if so, some of these things may rub you the wrong way, and that means that you're wrestling with the Lord, and that's okay. For you to actually go, that makes me uncomfortable, means that potentially God has a growing mechanism in your heart, and we want that to happen. Here at church, you know, we are confronted by God's word so that he will do some things uh, in our lives. Okay, so point number two. Point number two is going to be set up like this. You and I are going to play a little game. All right, so this is a game that has made the internet loops a thousand times around. It's famous in high school with high schoolers and college students everywhere. This is what happens at 12 o'clock in midnight when you don't want to go to sleep. And then you simply, you pull out this game. And this game is called, of course, Would You Rather? Um, this, if you don't know this game... So there's just an ellipsis here. So would you rather, and then there's a long pause. And it's for dramatic effect because you are about to be forced to answer a question that is impossible to answer. And yet you have to say A or B, one or two, either this or that. Are we ready to play? Okay, would you rather? <clears throat> would you rather have all traffic lights you approach be green? That's a pretty enticing moment. Or never have to stand in line ever again. Dun, 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 dun. All right, so all those pink people, all those people who would, ne would like to have a green light every single time in your life, raise your hand. Green lights. Oh, it's about 50-50. So what do you, I mean, what, are y'all going to Dollywood all the time? Like, you're in your car your whole life. How many lines do you stand in? I guess the restroom would be something. The cash register at the grocery store. Uh, no lines ever. But how many lines do you stand in? There's no one. There's three people at Target. I mean, maybe Dollywood, maybe Disney. Chick-fil-A. They. All right. All right, we are now, we've now all swung to the better half. All right, would you rather, <clears throat> settle down, settle down. Would you rather have, <clears throat> ladies, just be careful, just be careful. Would you rather have all your clothes fit perfectly <clears throat> or have the most comfortable pillow, blanket, and sheets in existence? <sighs> Look good or rest well? Which one? All right, all those clothes people out there, raise your hands. Three, four, okay, six, four, all right. So everybody says, I want a night. All right, raise your hands, blanket people, pillow people. That's why Mr. Pillow or whatever his name is, is a billionaire right now. He's promising rest. All right, here's what we do. Uh, this is, that was a segue. It was fun. All right, here's what Solomon's asking. All right, would you rather, would you rather, Attend a funeral or attend a wedding reception. It's for you to decide. I'm, we're not going to raise hands or whatever, but which would you prefer, right? The open casket with a corpse or wedding cake and dancing? Would you rather cry, weep, sob, or laugh? 
Laughing was fun a while ago. Which would you rather? Would you rather the end of something, to see something come to an end or a close, right? Or do you like beginnings? Once upon a time and those kinds of things. Do you prefer the former days? Make American gray again, right? Would you prefer the former days? That was a dig. I know. I'm sorry. Prefer the former days. Or are you content with what things are right now? I don't know which side of this graph you're on, but it matters. It matters because uh, today we're going to learn not just that God's, for God's sovereign plan makes us more wise, but we are going to learn that oftentimes seasons of adversity, this is where wisdom will happen. Look here, it says in verse 11, it says, wisdom is good. Verse 11 says, wisdom gives you an advantage. Verse 12, wisdom is there for your protection. Further, in verse 12, wisdom preserves your life. And so if wisdom is good, an advantage will be there for your protection and preserve your life. I mean, we want these things. Who doesn't want an advantage or protection of your life? Who doesn't want what is good? Well, what precedes these verses in 11 and 12 is this side of the graph. Solomon is about to tell us that things are good. That wisdom is not the only thing that is good, but there are things in life that are good. This is our passage all thrown together. You don't have to read it. You know, you don't have, you don't have to have 2010 vision. But here's what it says. It begins with a good name. And then it follows up with is better. Now, a little like good and better are not the same word in English. But in Hebrew, this Hebrew word is more good-er or more good-est, right? Which we just don't have that in English. But this is more gooder or more goodest, meaning, yeah, it's good, good. Okay? It happens twice. And then it says it a third time. Then it says it a fourth time. Then it says it a fifth time. And on and on and on and on it goes. Good, 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 good. And if we are, and we're about to read it, all of the good things that will produce wisdom in your life are on this side of the graphic. This is, what Paul, uh, this is what Solomon says. A good name is better than precious ointment. And the day of death, better than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind. And the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter. For by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. But the hearts of fools and the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. 
For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so the laughter of fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, but a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than the beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not be quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Why, or say not, why are the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask these. Wisdom is good with an inheritance and an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God who can make straight what he made crooked. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider God made one as well as the other. And so the second way that you and I get wise and we pursue wisdom is this idea to realize not only God's sovereignty, but that suffering is the better way. And that makes us so very uncomfortable to realize that it's through suffering and pain and torment and mourning and sickness and grief. This is what is going to, what is going to drip out if you give glory and honor to God. What's going to drip, drip out is wisdom. And so he gives us a couple, of, a couple of ways. He says this, the day of death is better than the day of day of birth. This is the first thing that we see. The day of birth is better than the day. So this is puzzling because in our society, um, the day of birth is far superior than the day of death. If you look at any Pampers commercial, right, or if you look at any maternity ward, like this is the greatest day on planet earth. And yet what Solomon says is the exact opposite. That really, if you want wisdom and you want to pursue God, godly things, for you to concentrate too much here would be foolish. Because the wise would actually consider the day of, of your death better, right? Good, good, goodest, gooder. This is the day that you need to be concentrating on. So why would he do that? Why would he flip that? Why would he do a role reversal like this? Well, it starts out a good name is better than precious ointment, even though we're not going to teach on that passage. Ointment or a perfume is wonderful, isn't it? Like you put it on your wrist or your neck or do something and you, it carries with you a few minutes or maybe a few hours, but then it's gone. But a good name, it lasts. It, it, it outlasts a few hours or a, a few minutes. Instead, it goes with you wherever you go. And so in the same way that ointment or perfume would be great and does smell wonderful, it's vanity. It passes like a shadow or a vapor or smoke. And this is Solomon's voice to us is consider the things that are going to pass away. And so the day of birth, right, is a good thing and has joy considered to it. But just how much wisdom can be gained from the day of birth? Oh, she looks just like your grandpa. I mean, that's something, but I don't know if we would consider it wisdom. Oh, where did she get that red hair? Is something, but it's not everything. 
And yet when you go to a funeral, when you go to a funeral, something different happens. The day of birth is only, only dripping, if it's dripping with anything, it's only dripping with what we would call potential, what might be. And what Solomon says, the things that might be, I would not bank on that. And yet, if you reflect on something, or the day of death actually becomes a fulfillment of something, a hard stop in which we are able to reflect days and days and years and decades on something, now that's where the day, of, or that's where wisdom comes. When we go to funerals, it's more than, oh, she's got a cute nose or five, you know, ten fingers and ten toes. Or whether she's fussy or not. But at the end of the day, you would say, you would hear about my grandmama, grandmother Winnie's garden. Or the way that she peeled apples. Or the way that she loved her grandchildren and her children alike. Her front porch and her swing and her hospitality. And the fact that she would leave a gun on the kitchen table at night just in case someone broke in. That way they, wouldn't, they would know who was boss. That's endearing, right? Or my Aunt Jean at her funeral. She had a great-grandson, a granddaughter, and a son or stand up and say, my Aunt Jean or my mom or my grandmother, but my Aunt Jean, she was a great commissioned woman meaning she lived her entire life in reflection of the great commission to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That had to be said at the day of her death, not the day of her birth, when she was birthed on some county road in Kansas, Georgia. The day of death is better because it is a fulfillment of something. So we have a doctrine in the Christian faith called the perseverance of the saints. Where we lift up the day of salvation because the scriptures tell us that there will be a day and salvation is of the Lord. And today salvation will come to someone's house. Like the day of salvation is amazing. And yet we also at the same time, we rejoice in this because thousand angels are rejoicing. We rejoice in this and yet at the end of your life, what will be said of you will be more important than one day when you raised a hand in some revival or you walked an aisle when you were 12 or you're baptized when you were 15 or you made some commitment. If you've done those things and yet there's nothing of following after Jesus or committing your life to him now or later or at your death, nothing can be said of that. Then following after Jesus may not be the claim that you would want it to be. The perseverance of the saints tells us that how you end is better than how you begin. And that's why the four soils matters to us because there can be sprouts and there can be growth. And yet if it is ends and we see nothing, be careful. The wisdom that Solomon is asking us is to consider how we are on the journey, not just reflecting back on something and putting all of our attention and effort and energy and confidence in something way back then. Is it true today like it was true then? This is where wisdom happens. Second thing is a house of mourning is better than the house of feasting. These are very similar. 
Right? So they don't need a ton more explanation. But the fact is, you and I would go to the house of feasting, the house of pleasure, the house of you just fill in the blank more than walking into a somber place where all you hear is the wailing of, 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 of wives who've lost their husbands or husbands who've lost their wives or children who just lost a parent. We would pick a concert. We would pick a party with friends over the house of mourning almost every time. And yet this role reversal, this, this switch is that Solomon says, no, you actually need to consider the house of mourning because it is better. It is good, good. It is good-er. This is where you find it. Funeral homes, you know, or wedding receptions. We, I mean, it's just no, it's a no-brainer. The fact is that oftentimes we try to avoid these places. And in this avoidance, oftentimes the avoidance of the house of mourning actually comes through the house of feasting because we try to dodge the mourning or we try to dodge the hurt or we try to dodge the pain. We try to avoid it altogether. And so what we do is we overemphasize this house of feasting or the house of drinking, or the house of partying, or the house of gluttony, or the house of entertainment, or the house of you just continue on and on and on, and we just find ourselves walking toward these things. I've done counseling with, with addicts, and we've done counseling with people who have been attached to something that has looked like the house of fe feasting whether it would be alcohol or other types of glamorous things that they've attached their name to. And at the end of the day, all the ones that I've counseled, they've said, I don't drink or I don't do these things out of joy. I actually do these things to try to avoid the pain in my life. And so maybe you're in here and you find yourself leaning toward entertainment too much or leaning toward alcohol or some kind of abusive subject too much, substance too much. Maybe you are leaning towards something that will enrich your eyes and your hearts and get you excited, and yet you potentially might just be running from the thing that is at, God is screaming at you this morning, that that's where wisdom is found, because that's where I am found. And that's what Solomon's true message to us is for us to find God and God alone. And oftentimes when we find ourselves mourning, we cling to God and God alone. Let's not go step too quickly into that. One more example of a house of mourning is that there's, there's these small tribes of and small little villages um, of Christians who have this really morbid uh, tradition in which they, when they bury an elder or a pastor or some kind of like main guy, they will bury him, let him sit for you know, a decade or so, and they'll actually go and dig up their bones. Weird, right? Especially the skull. And then there's this ledge of skulls lining. And they'll force their parishioners, their people, to walk past those skulls and potentially even reach out a hand and touch them. It's morbid, it's gross, it's weird. But here's the point. This, and they'll point to a skull, said this is the very best of the best. 
This is the elder that started the church. This is uh, the priest that, that uh, you know, uh, took him to Christ. This is the elder. This is the da. And all of this is the best of the best. And I just want your eyes and your hands to look upon this. This is the end of all of us. Because funeral homes are great preachers. And funeral homes are great evangelists. And funeral homes, to Solomon's point, are great friends to you and I to wake us up that our days will end no matter how great you are, no matter how significant you are, no matter how much influence you have, our days will come to an end. And what Solomon is telling us is how we end the day of mourning will actually prepare us better for that blessed day when we will meet Jesus. And if we're spending our times just in feasting and pleasures, we are devoiding ourselves of preparing for a better day, the day in which we will die and go to meet with Jesus. If we have that day in our focus, we then will spend our days getting ready for that. Third is that sorrow is better than laughter. Sorrow is better than laughter. They're all very uh, similar. The only thing I would draw our attention to is verse 5. Sorry, um, better than laughter, for by sadness... A face, the heart is made glad, but the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. And so it's all very similar that there are, there's a house here and a house here. And, and Solomon is telling us we need to truly, truly accept the fact that mourning and sorrow is better than us. And Jesus would say the same thing. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are, blessed are those who weep. Um, James would say, um, consider all joy, my brothers, when you face various trials, those types of things. Sorrow and mourning and death really do shake us. They really do shake us. There's a book that I haven't read, just read about a book review on it. His name is Nicholas Walter Stroff. And the, and the book is called The Lament for a Son. This whole book is the fact that he lost a 25-year-old son to a climbing accident, and it rocked his world. And so he spent pages and pages of journaling talking about the grief and the pain that this, had, this event had on his life. And he comes to some radical conclusions at the end, even thanking God for taking his son. In the second edition of his book, A Lament for a Son, in the second edition, the preface, the intro for whatever, um, there's this, this anecdote where he says, and then in my kind of, like when I was talking to crowds, I met a father who read, read my book and was so moved that he bought a copy for each of his children. And at a certain age, he would hand it to that child. Most of us would say that that would be a cruel gesture to say, hey, <laughs> This kid died, right? It would be a strange gesture. But to Nicholas Walterstroff's point, he says it was actually a place of love. It's a place of love because what he is telling each of his children is that the day of death and sorrow is coming for us and we have to prepare for us, for it. So maybe, just maybe, 
you have been in a season of sorrow and grief and pain and you have found yourself resistant to the Lord over and over and over. Maybe today, because of this word better, good, good, you can lay that down and say, maybe, just maybe, God has brought that in my life to make me wiser and to make it better. We won't, we won't preach through it, but the fourth one is a rebuke is better than a song. <laughs> a rebuke is better than a song. Who wants to be rebuked? Solomon says, get with some friends that will call you to something. And then lastly, the end of a thing is better than the beginning. So these are all things that we would consider as, as negative. And yet Solomon says these things are better. So how does Ecclesiastes 6 and 7 end? It ends in verse 13. Consider the work of God, colon. Who can make straight what he, this is God, what he has made crooked? Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked. Do you see those two words, make and made? Those are words for creation, that he is forming and making and creating. And so in the same way that God made the sun, the stars, and the grass, and animals, consider the work of God, continue, God continues to work in this way. He who, made, who, who can make straight what he has made crooked. And so God, because of his sovereignty and because of his perfect plan, he will make crooked things for us. And we want our lives to be straight and we want our lives to be perfect. And somehow, some way, God makes it crooked and he wants the creator, the creation, he wants the credit for that that he is the one who is intentionally making it crooked, making it so it is not efficient. So at every bend, you know that it's crooked and you're not trying to make it straight because it is what it is. Because Ecclesiastes 3 tells us there is a season to be born and there is a season to die. There is a time for mourning and laughter. It's not good or bad. All of it's necessary. And the things that we would consider bad or even crooked, he wants credit for those things too. He goes on to say more creation language, but he says, in the day of prosperity, be joyful and in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other. You need to underline that verse. You need to memorize that verse. And you need to take that verse with you for all of your days. Consider the work of God in the days of prosperity. Whatever is right in front of you, be joyful because God has given that to you. But in the day of adversity, consider God has made one as well as the other. And so the day of death, the one that we try to walk away from, guess what? He says, I made it. In the same way, the funerals that we try to avoid, he says, I made it. In the crying that you try to not do, I made it. In the rebukes, I made it. And in the endings, I made it. Over and over, he says, I am the one. Isaiah 45 goes on to say this. He says, 
that I have formed light and I have created darkness. I have made well-being and I have created calamity. I and the Lord have done these things. And so if you have a theology where God is only in the good and the happy places, I pray that you leave here knowing that it is is more balanced than that. And this doesn't make God cruel. It just makes him say, this is where wisdom and this is where I can be found. It's better to enter into these things. I'll leave you with Romans 8. Who can condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was the one who was raised. He is the one who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. So what, who can separate us from the love of God or from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation separate us from the love of Christ? No, or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as is written for you for your sake you are being killed all day long we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered no in these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us for i am sure that neither death nor life nor angels or rulers or things present or things to come nor powers nor heights nor depths nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of god that it is in christ jesus because christ jesus Jesus knows the day of death and conquers it. He walks into a funeral and he says, get up. He weeps with the ones who was weeping. He rebukes. He has been rebuked. And one day he will rebuke all things. And the ending will truly come to an end. But in in our time, we look to him who has conquered these things. And we walk with him in the times and the places that he has for us. You may be bitter and mad at God this morning because he has allowed these things in your life. I pray that you turn that bitterness and the resentment, memorize Romans 8, and you say, maybe, just maybe, these things God has made for me. Those are hard things to say. But the people of God who follow after Jesus come to a time and a place where they will freely say that and worship God because of it. Let's pray. Jesus Christ, you have made both beginning and end. And yet you tell us to consider the end. You tell us to consider mourning. You tell us to consider death. You tell us to consider funeral parlors. Because that is where wisdom can be found. Jesus Today in in here, there may be a whole host of men and women who are running toward the house of feasting to avoid the hurt and the pain in their life. And they haven't appropriately just sat in the sadness, sat in the hurt, and sat in the pain. They've rushed the process. I pray for these men and these women who are running after idols and running after things that will never fulfill. If that's you this morning, 
we, God wants you to respond. And the best response is to confess your sins one to another. To repent and believe that God has you right where you are. Maybe you're in here and you've despised God and you've dismissed Jesus because if God is great and has made all things, he certainly can't be good and allow these things. And in our passage this morning, it says, no, God has made it all. And maybe, just maybe, this is the day for your salvation where you are going to start something, start a relationship of trust no matter what, good or bad, darkness or lightness, well-being or calamity, that you're going to trust God fully and completely. Maybe today is your day of salvation. If you are pursuing feasting to your detriment, to your pain, to your misery, if you are far from Lord and want to consider Christ Jesus this morning, we would encourage you to get out of your seats uh, when we stand to take communion and, and to walk back to the back because we have our care team, our prayer team back there that would love to, to, to talk with you. And so each and every Sunday, uh, we come to a table of remembrance. We come to a table of remembrance because it's a story of endings, it looks like. Because Jesus Christ, torn in two, stabbed, bled, it looked like this was his ending. And yet this was just the beginning for Christ Jesus. What looked like death, what looked like punishment was actually our beginning. The thing that we needed the most. As followers of Jesus Christ, we all gather around this table to say, I may do it terribly week in and week out. And yet Jesus Christ has done it perfectly every single time. I trust in you, Jesus, the perfecter of our faith. I don't trust in myself. So if you're following after Jesus this morning, we would really encourage you to pursue the table. This would be your act of faith, to walk, to trust Jesus fully and completely. Maybe you're an addict. Maybe you're trusting in things that you shouldn't. Maybe you're far from Jesus and you want to write that relationship this morning. The prayer team is in the back. So go ahead and stand. We've got men around the room that would be glad to serve you uh, these things. And so um, as you're ready, uh, go and take. pray together. Jesus Christ, we pray that uh, as we walked in here that we have met you and your spirit has been good to us and you have met us right where we are. We pray that when we leave those doors that uh, God, we will not be, that we will be changed, that we will not be the same. I pray that each of us have grappled with the Lord in a personal and a real way. Thank you for your timing. Thank you for your sovereignty. We pray that we won't reject the seasons of suffering that you allow in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you don't mind, go ahead and grab a seat. We have some announcements for you um, uh, regarding Elizabethan and uh, the church planting efforts. Uh, Ecclesiastes 3 is very clear that there is a time to plant. 
and the elders at Redstone Church, we have been praying for planting other churches as we have been planted out of Redeemer uh, six years ago. Now we are planting another church in Elizabethan, and uh, these guys have been on a journey for the last two years. And so we just wanted to come up here today and share with you some exciting news with what is going on in Elizabethan. And without much further ado, we will hand it over to Sam Adams. All right, so I just wanted to take a minute to share kind of where we've been, because this is a really long journey, right? Like Redstone considered you and Nicole used to live in Elizabethan, so you even considered planting Elizabeth at that point. That's God right. led you to Johnson City. Yep. So it's been in kind of the DNA for a long time. Spencer and I started hanging out six years ago on a weekly basis and even had some conversations then just about Elizabethan and culture and stuff like that. Um, the last couple of years, I, I did um, some seminary, and so part of my time in seminary is able to do some research into Elizabethan, the culture, learn some things there. So I learned a lot of things. Like the last time there was a successful church plant that's still around today was like the 1980s. Um, I learned. So, the, so you're saying the success rate is pretty, pretty low, right? Pretty low. Pretty okay. low yeah. Um, learned other things like discipleship is really, really needed as well as the gospel too. Um, there are over 7,000 people in Elizabethan alone that are far from Jesus and far from community. Um, so because of those reasons, those are big reasons as to why we feel like God has called us to plant a church in Elizabethan. Um, and so two or three years ago, the elders, they had a retreat. Um, and they were like, you know, there's a lot of people from Carter County in Redstone Church. I'm like, wonder what that could be. Um, so they asked my wife and me to start a community group. So that was in February of 2018, I believe. Um, so we started a community group with a bunch of people um, from Redstone and then also people that had not been a part of Redstone. And so we started meeting then for a long time. I worked over the summer to just continue doing research, that sort of thing. And then the fall of 2018, the elders met with us, and they're like, um, they, they sincerely believe that God was calling them to, to plant a church in Elizabethan. And so we switched to what's called a core group. Um, so a group of people with the express purpose of starting a new gospel um, expression in Elizabethan. So over the last year and a half, as we've been doing that, and in the community, serving the community, and kind of getting word out, that sort of thing, we've also been praying that God would just call um, certain people to come and lead his church. We wanted to have a plurality of leaders in the church because we feel like that's a, a healthier expression of leadership within God's local church. And so for the last year and a half, we've been praying for a teaching um, elder, a teaching pastor specifically. And so as members have already heard, we were telling you today, we believe that God has called Jerry to be that lead teaching pastor in Elizabethan. And so I'm going to turn it over to him, let him kind of share his heart in that calling. Um, and I think that's it. Spencer, did you have any specific questions or comments? Uh, you go, and I'll ask plenty. Yeah. yeah, okay. So I was sitting back there this morning, and I was thinking, there was this time in my life, and if you're on the leadership team or if you're part of the core group in Elizabeth and are part of my family, you've kind of heard the long story, right? So the short story is it was around, um, well, it was back in the 90s, and I was thinking, how long ago was it when I felt that Jesus was calling me to pastor? And it was 28 years ago. Right, so there was this call 28 years ago, you know, jumped into Bible college and was trying to figure it out, and then I ended up taking a different route. I ended up running a Christian school for 23 years, and, and then I fell in love with the local church. You know, I met Spencer and fell in love with Redstone and the local church, and it was clear that Jesus was calling me away from what had been my vocation for 23 years into the local church, and then, then my heart just con continued to go pitter-patter, right? And so that I was raised in Elizabethan. I know Elizabeth, and I know those people well. When Cammie and I got married, we, we, you know, got a house, you know, off of G Street, you know, in Elizabeth. And so I've always had a heart for Elizabeth, and so that hasn't changed. It's actually increased, you know, as I've gone through this process. 
you know, but um, trying to step into that space a couple of different times over the past year, it was like the Lord was just saying no. So finally, I just kind of said, okay, well, there, there's a no. And then I had some health issues this past year, as, as most of you guys know, and there was like three of those. Boom, boom, boom. It was a, a crazy year, and the last one was just this bout with prostate cancer, and I came out of that, and I was sitting at home, and I just knew. Um, probably a month before that, I had, I had never done this before, and I was walking and praying one morning, and I sent Cammie this text, my wife, and I was like, I think I just heard from the Lord. And so that night she was like, so what, what was that all about? And I was like, well, nothing. Let's not even talk about it because if it really was of the Lord and it wasn't Mexican food that we had last night, then the Lord will confirm it at some point in time. And then that was just gone. And then a month, you know, um, later I found out that I had, you know, some, some health issues. And two months later I had, you know, surgery. And then like five days later I'm sitting at home and it was that same thing. And I just broke. I just cried. I just wept. But I was thinking back on like the beginning Right, the beginning was 28 years ago, and I told Sam that like 15 minutes ago, and he was like, "I'm 28 years old." <laughs> right? And when's your birthday? March of 91. And it was March of 91 that the Lord called me. Actually, that's not true, right? <laughs> but it might be. I don't know. I don't know, right? So, <laughs> but it really was. It was 28 years ago. Jesus calls me, and Sam comes into this world, and here we are together, and we're just like excited. Right, so there's this there's this Ecclesiastes seven like moment of, you know, there's the beginning of things and there's the ending of things. Right, they're both of God, they're both the work of God, and we just rejoice, you know, in both of them. And um, addition's good, right? But multiplication is better, right? And Spencer's always had this heart for being a multiplying church, you know, just kind of looking. He just talks about like Appalachia. Right? We just need to be planting churches. We need to be raising up elders. We need to be planting churches because that's how the gospel is going to go, going to go forth. And he's right. right. So I, that was contagious, and that kind of rubbed you know, off on me, and I was a part of that planning process. I just didn't realize I was going to be the one that was going to be going and, and helping you know, lead the church. But that's where we're at. So um, we are going to plant a church in Elizabeth. Amen. And, yeah, I love the, you know, the love of the people of Elizabeth, and, and we've got some bold vision. Um, but right now, we're just wanting to celebrate that Jesus is making his voice clear, and we know that he's calling us to Elizabeth. So let's do this. Let's thank the Lord for working in a very personal way. That's so good. Um, okay, so, um, so you've, you've been in contact with Sam, who's led the charge for the last two years a part of their leadership team, and then also the core team. So they've been a part of this confirmation process. Just give us a glimpse. How, are, how have those meetings gone? Yeah, I, not to make fun, Spencer, but I feel like I have gone through the uh, congressional hearings to be the next Supreme Court Justice of the United States, right? So there have it's been... It's not a, been that bad. But it feels that way because I've gone through like a lot of hoops, which was great because here was the thing. Here's what I told my family. I was like... I don't want to like be scratching an itch, right? Either this is the call of King Jesus or it's not. And if it's not, I need to know that because this is a big thing, right? So yeah, it began with, you know, meeting with, you know, Spencer, meeting with, you know, Spencer and Daniel, meeting with uh, the leadership team of, of Redstone, 
you know, meeting with Sam, spending some time with Sam, and the more we talked, the more we realized that the Lord was in this. Meeting with the leadership team of Elizabeth, and meeting with the leadership team of Elizabeth again. And then there was a group of pastors. This was the wisdom, of, I think, of Spencer to say, there's only two elders, right? So it would make sense that we, you know, pull in some other people from the Acts 29 network and some other pastors that we really trust. Let's bring them into this process, because they don't care one way or another, whether it's Jerry or whether it's somebody else, but they know the right kinds of questions to ask to determine whether this is really a call, you know, on someone's life or not. So I went through that. There was like a couple of hours with each one of those guys. And just the more we met and then went, this past Wednesday was the one that was the most terrifying of all, right? And they're back there. But it was like I had to go before the whole core team of Elizabethan and like sit on the hot seat and like share my testimony and then answer questions. And I was scared to death. Right, and we got to the end of it, and there was just just perfect peace, and they all came around me, and they laid hands on me, and they prayed for me, and it was just beautiful. It was just absolutely beautiful. So yeah, we're kind of at the end of that, and every voice, whether it be Sam, whether it be family, whether it be you know these pastors, you know, or whether it be the the leadership team and the core team, you know, even Spencer going and spending a couple of days on the mountain, and then coming back and saying, I just sense the peace of God in this. This is the day that He's given to us. And I'm ready to rejoice in this day. So, yeah, it's been very affirming. And I don't know what right as rain means, but I've been using that a lot. It just feels right as rain. It didn't feel right as rain a couple months ago, you know, when I tried to step into it, but it feels right as rain right now. The, the, the timing of the Lord is perfect. So let's do this. Let's celebrate uh, what the Lord has done and pray to him and thank God that he is still at work. He's at work in all of our lives. So this is a, a time for our church body to really rejoice and truly rejoice that the God, the God of heaven is not done with us yet. So let's pray. Uh, Jesus Christ, thank you for these two men to my left. Um, I just, I love them so very much. Uh, but more than loving them, I love Christ through you. Um, Christ, you are contagious through Sam Adams and Jerry Williams. Your light shines brightly out of their lives through seasons of immense trial and suffering and pain. They continue to cling to Jesus, to consider God in all things. And for that, we, we rejoice. So thank you for the integrity. Thank you for the calling, the call of God that's on both of these men's lives. And so now, as we start a new journey, Jesus, we pray many blessings. God, we pray blessings and grace and mercy on them and then the core team and then Elizabethan. God, we want King Jesus to be Lord of Lords and King of Kings in Carter County. And we just hope that we're part, a little beat, little part of that. We pray that the gospel is continuing on our lips and that we will continue to gather and scatter in the name of Jesus. Uh, God, this is a big, big deal for Jerry and the Williams family. This is a major transition in their life, and yet they are filled with peace. They're filled with joy. They're filled with contentment, Lord. And for that, we know that your spirit is at work. And so today, we just want you to know uh, out in public, God, that we were rejoicing you for not being done with us yet. You could easily ask us to retire. You could easily ask us just to quit, but you don't. You just continue to work through us. And we're grateful for that. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So once again, let's thank God for what God is doing in Elizabethan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Boom, boom, boom. Okay, so you guys are probably asking lots of questions like, okay, so what does that mean? That's family meeting. All right, write it down. November the 10th, um, whatever the time is. I don't know that time, but whatever that time is, you need to show up um, and uh, really uh, come 
be ready to participate and hear from um, the leadership of Redstone Church about this transition and timeline and money and those kinds of things. November 10th, it'll be in the evening, 5.30 or so. Um, uh, so, so just mark that. Um, all right, so we want you uh, to be sacrificial. And we want you uh, to give as unto the Lord, especially for these types of moments. That Redstone Church is now going to be in two locations. Elizabeth and Anne in Johnson City, and we need to be sacrificial. And part of that is through our giving, our time, and our talents. And so these men are going to pass these baskets in light of what God is doing in Elizabeth. And please give as unto the Lord.